We are going to move on with our service, though. If you look in your, your service order, you can see there that we are moving to our first scripture reading. It's from Ecclesiastes 2. As we preach through the Gospel of Mark, we are reading sort of in the opposite testament, and now in the book of Ecclesiastes. Jim is going to come and read it for us. Jim, I'll invite you forward now. No? Okay, we're back. Good. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master over all of which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all my toil of my labors under the sun. Because some, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest, this is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I also saw from the this this also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment. For the one who pleases God, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God, this is also vanity and striving after wind. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it won't be me preaching, I'll say more about that in a minute, but we are just kind of soldiering on. We're in Mark chapter 12 uh, and verses 1 through 12. It's a, it's a parable. It's a little, little standalone story today you'll hear about in a second. I'm going to invite Brian forward to read it for us, and then I'll say a few words about our guest preacher this morning. Brian. I'm okay. Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And is it marvelous in our eyes? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, we have the privilege this morning of hearing from Adam Calloway. Adam is a friend of mine. He's a pastor at the Met here in town, uh, mostly dealing with young adults, but he dabbles in other things. There's a thing called the Timothy Trust, which trains preachers uh, in expositional preaching. They just had a conference on that. So he wears a few hats, but mostly uh, he hangs out with young adults and helps disciple and encourage them in their faith. Uh, he's also a great basketball player, which means I need to put the mic up a little bit higher because he's a little bit taller than me. Uh, but we're glad to hear from this morning. Adam, if you would come now, I'd love to pray for you as you do, brother. God, thank you for Adam. Thank you for his ministry at the Met and in the city of Ottawa. We are grateful for that church and for him. Please bless him now as he delivers your word to us. May it encourage our hearts and may it encourage his heart as he preaches. In Christ's name, amen. Adam. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, everyone, for the warm welcome. It's always a joy for me to be here. I, I grew up in the Chicago area at a church that's a little bit more liturgical, so I feel like I'm, I'm at home when I come here, actually. Um, and Ben was mentioning the conference, uh, the Timothy Trust Conference I was at the Met last week, and uh, I, I always try to make my way over to the Reformed guys' table, you know, because I feel like I'm kind of at the cool kids' table when I'm with them. Uh, a little bit jealous sometimes of the Reformed thing. I did leave my two very young daughters at home today because I was a little bit worried that Ben would sort of try to direct some of the sprinkles over to them. Um, <laughs> Actually, um, the first time I preached here, my, my daughter Elizabeth, who's our middle daughter, um, Ben was like, Adam, you know, when you come to preach, maybe we can just kill two birds with one stone. We can just baptize Lizzie. And I said, I think maybe just one, one bird will be fine uh, for today. Okay, you're in a series in Mark, Mark chapter 12, this is the parable of the tenants. Uh, it'll be of help to you to leave the text open as we work our way through it. I'm going to say a brief word of prayer here and then we will uh, look at the parable. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we ask as we've just been singing, that you would open up your word to us. Lord, may we see the gospel of your beloved son, even as we study this, this text in Mark today. And may we come to know him and love him more. And Lord, help us to, to see a, a glimpse, to just catch a glimpse of your great, great compassion and patience that you extend to us as your people to lead us to repentance. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just start by asking this. What happens in our lives when people are big and God is small? What happens? I think another way to ask it would be what happens when other people become more real to us than God? What happens when the opinions of others the affirmation of others, the praise of others becomes more important to us than God's approval toward us in Jesus Christ. 
Dr. Ed Welch, some of you may know him from Westminster Seminary, he actually wrote a little book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And straight away in chapter one, the book calls us to realize that the fear of people is both a major theme in all of our lives and it's a major theme in the Bible. He says we all fear people to some degree. Welch suggests that those among us who tend to be overcommitted need to consider whether this has happened in our lives, people who constantly second-guess themselves, people who tend to tell little white lies. He says any of these things can actually be indicators that people are controlling the center of your life. And the Bible really does talk a lot about this. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of the Lord there is, is otherwise translated caring, the fear of human people, sorry, that snare and trapping fear of people. It's otherwise translated the fear of human opinion, caring too much about what other people think of us. And so the question to ask is whose opinion really matters to me the most? If we're honest, we find ourselves falling into that snare, into the trap, into the vice of fearing people more than we, than we fear God. The laud of people around us ends up mattering more to us than the love from the God above us. So we lie in order to be seen more favorably. We compromise in our convictions when it comes to how we use our weekends, so long as it ups our chances with the people in our circles of influence. We work hard when we know our boss is looking. But other times we slack, we fear people. It's easy for people to be big to us and for God to be small. Jesus' opponents the scribes and the chief priests, the religious authorities of his day, well, they fell into this trap big time. In chapter 11, if you want to just glance to last week's passage, in chapter 11 and verse 32, we learn that they responded to Jesus' question about where John the Baptist got his authority out of their fear of the people. You can see it right there in the text. They were afraid of the people. Luke's account of this parable says that they were afraid that the people might stone them to death. One commentator says that such a stoning instituted by the people would have had no legal warrant. So in a sense, this fear is irrational. This hypothetical stoning was a creation of their own imaginations that gushed out of their fear of people. And now look for a moment with me to the end of our passage, down at chapter 12 and, and verse 12. While they wanted to arrest Jesus and send him away to be crucified, what stopped them? They feared the people. And so in its context, it's like this parable is a kind of sandwich in between two slices in a loaf of the completely wrong kind of fear, the fear of people. These religious leaders stand completely frozen, they're handcuffed, tongue-tied, by the people's opinions of them and their decisions. They second-guess themselves because of what people might do or think. They have this great reputation of being God-fearers, but really, they're just people-pleasers. And I think that we're more like them than we like to think. 
Isn't it true that our actions toward Jesus Christ are sometimes determined by our fear of people's reactions to us? Can you think of a time where your fear of what people might think about you ends up determining what you actually do or say about Jesus or whether you choose to obey or disobey Jesus? Verse 12, they feared the people. People were big, God was small. And so Jesus confronts our fear of people with this parable. If you want to get rid of your people fear problem, if you want to get rid of your fear of people, this parable can make all the difference. Because through it, Jesus provides for us, he equips us with two big resources for fearing God rather than people. Two big resources for fearing God rather than people, the compassion of God and the judgment of God. And we'll look closely at each resource as we work our way through the passage. First then, the compassion of God, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1 says, And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. At this point, readers of Mark will have grown familiar with Jesus using soil imagery in his teaching. In fact, the only other extended parable that's included in Mark is the parable of the soils and the seed in chapter 4. And so now he uses agricultural imagery again, but now he shifts slightly from the seeds and soil to the picture of a vineyard. And this parable's vineyard, uh, imagery comes from God's comparison of Israel to a vineyard in the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah 5 say that the Lord had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Or like Psalm 80, O God of hosts, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock your right hand planted. The Old Testament depicts God as a kind of vineyard planter, a kind of vineyard landlord with Israel as his vineyard. And so in the parable, against that canvas, if you like, Jesus is painting a picture of a compassionate God planting his people Israel in the land and demanding a harvest of worship. He demands fruitfulness as a response to his faithfulness. He demands that his real tenants, Israel's priests and Israel's kings, bring back the fruit of love and obedience from this vineyard, from the land and the people that he's entrusted to them. So then the tenants represent Israel's leaders throughout history and their failure to steward God's promises to God's people. And like the landlord, God sent his servants, he sent the prophets to the tenants, to Israel's leaders, he sends his servants that the tenants might repent from their sins and acknowledge the, that this vineyard that's been entrusted to them is a gift from a gracious God. But in the parable, just like throughout Old Testament history, each servant sent by the man, each prophet sent by God, each servant sent to bring back some of the fruit of the vineyard, verse 2, is treated worse than the previous one. In verse 3, the tenants took the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Like when Moses was driven away by his own people for merely seeking to unify them. In verse 4, 
the man sent to them another servant. This time they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Like Jeremiah, who was beaten and put in the stocks for simply telling the truth. And in verse 5, Jesus says he sent another and they killed him. Which could be referring to John the Baptist, who in Mark 6, his head is served as the main course at Herod's birthday banquet. And with each passing servant, so reading this text, we should be feeling a sense of tension. We should be thinking and asking, bubbling up in our minds, what kind of man is this guy? What kind of landlord keeps sending his servants to this vineyard overrun by such violent and fruitless tenants? Is he stubborn? Is he blind to reality? Does he have just little to no regard for these servants' lives? What's going on? Or could it be that Jesus is depicting a God of relentless compassion toward a hardened and sinful yet beloved people? Look again at the details of the text. Verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant. Verse 5. And he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others. The tenants eat these servants for breakfast. It's kind of like a servant smorgasbord. It's an all-you-can-beat servant buffet. One commentator says that the tenants pay their rent in blows. The servants are like slabs of meat on a cutting board, beaten again and again with a tenderizer, one after the other. But what does this man do? The landlord simply will not quit sending servants to them. So then what are we supposed to conclude? In Nehemiah 9.26, it says the people were disobedient and rebelled against God and cast his law behind their backs and killed his prophets. Yet God... Jeremiah 7.25, persistently sent all his servants to them day after day. But they didn't listen to him or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks. So what conclusion are we supposed to make about this landlord? You want to know what I think? It's grace. It's aggressive grace. Compassion, mercy undeserved. I think the words another and again and many in the text, they put the relentless compassion of the Lord on display. The Bible calls God merciful and gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And here he's like a parent who just continues to set the table calmly, even after his toddler swipes away each plate he sets for it onto the floor, splattering the food everywhere. Why? Because he knows that they're hungry, even better than they do. He's the kind of God who, even when his people turn on him, he won't quit on them. He sends servant after servant after servant. 2 Peter 3.9 says the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And what Peter tells in his letter, Jesus here shows in this parable. 
He shows us a radical picture of God's compassion and his patience. Why? In order to lead his people to repentance. In order to lead his people away from their own sinful ways and toward God that they might produce a harvest for him. And oh, how we need this. One definition of the fear of the Lord that I find helpful is that it means so to love him that his smile is your greatest delight and his frown would be your greatest dread. And if the fear of the Lord is so to love him that his smile is our greatest delight, what could make that more real than for Jesus Christ to put the compassion of God under a microscope for us? It's as if with each servant sent by the landlord, Jesus is putting a magnifying glass over the compassion of the Lord so that he looks bigger and bigger and bigger to his people. To a people who when they go to to spy out the land, they come back and say, oh no, we could never go there. Those people, they're like giants and we're mere grasshoppers. And Jesus Christ comes and he puts a, a magnifying glass over God's compassion to shrink people and blow up God. It's not that God is actually becoming more compassionate with the sending of each servant, not at all. But he's doing whatever it takes for us to realize his massive and unchanging compassion. In C.S. Lewis, the the Chronicles of Narnia, I've been reading it with my son, there's this uh, family who discover this whole other world through this magical wardrobe where they meet this amazing lion. His name's Aslan, and this lion created the, the magical world through the wardrobe simply by singing. But none of the children seem to get it. In fact, sometimes they can't even see the lion when he's standing right there. But there is one little girl who gets it all the time. She can almost always see Aslan. As the kids grow older, they're, they're blinded from time to time toward the compassion and the, the fearfulness of this great king and this great lion. But Lucy, she always sees him. And in one of the books, I think it's in Prince Caspian, when none of the other children can see him, Lucy sees him and she finds him in the woods and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. But Aslan comes back to her and he says, no, I'm not. But you are older, little one. And every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And so too, God seems bigger from the perspective of his people every year they grow. Sorry, I'm supposed to pick up my daughter from preschool, I guess. But it isn't as if God's compassion is growing as we grow. And it's not as if God and his compassion is growing as Jesus is telling the parable. But his intent is that his hearers will. They'll see him bigger. And as they repent in response to his compassion, they might see the bigness of God. But still, verse 7, they reject him. The Bible tells us that the people of Israel and their repeated hardness and rejection of God actually serves as an example to us. The New Testament basically tells us not to be like them. 
Throughout history, it's like God is the divine doctor filling a syringe and injecting it into his sin-sick people when they deserve a lethal injection from a divine executioner. He has every right to be severe with them, but instead he spills over with compassions and patience. And I wonder if we've considered this enough. If we're the kind of people that struggle with the fear of people, have we considered the compassion of God? Because we can act like little owners of our own little vineyards when we're really just tenants. Whether it's our families or our jobs or our bank accounts. But what do we have that we have not received? And we can also presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience rather than letting it lead to us to repentance. But here's the good news. We have a compassionate and loving landlord who will not quit on us. He patiently gives us resources to serve us and lead us to repentance. He gives us family, friends, a church, even if it does baptize infants. I wasn't sure if you guys were ready for that at this point in the sermon. But. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us all of these things. Our health. He's always giving. And it's a lush and a rich vineyard. And he's entrusted all this to us to serve him with faithfulness and fruitfulness. And look. Look at verse 6. The man isn't done with his compassionate sending. After each of his servants is shamefully treated and sent away empty-handed. In verse 6 we're told he had still another He had still one other, a beloved son. Now this, I think, is the moment in the parable that can become really relatable to us, can sort of catch a lot of people's attentions, because many in this room are fathers. Pretty much everyone else in the room who isn't has had a father. And if not, many will be or have been either tenants or landlords. And as we look to verse 6, after emptying his servant's safe, the landlord, if you like, has one precious jewel left over in his compassion treasury, his beloved son. Did you see that love language in verse 6? He had still one other, a beloved son. Now, I've never yet been a landlord. I have been a tenant. Some of you who have been landlords yourselves, you may have some stories about some of the tenants that you've had and some of the antics that uh, they've put you through. Some here have probably been the tenants who do the antics. But um, I think we can all agree that none of our tenant-ish antics will have compared to these murderous tenants in Mark 12. And so if you were the landlord, what would be your next move? If you overheard the whispering tenants in verse 7, what would you do? If this were your vineyard, maybe you'd sign an eviction notice or you'd take these boys to court for ruining your rental property. That's what we would do. Might just even say that that's what the Lord should do. That's what this guy should do in Jesus' parable. But Isaiah says God's ways are not our ways, for his thoughts are far higher than ours, for God abundantly pardons. Any other father would save his one and only son. 
But this father, end of verse 6, sent him. Any other father would hoard his one and only son, but this father hurled him. Any other father would keep his one and only son, but this father commissioned him. It's the ultimate expression of God's endless compassion. At the end of verse 6, we finally hear the voice of the father. He says, finally, it says, finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Surely they'll get it then. And I bet the earliest hearers of this parable would have regarded the landlord at this point as naive. He's lost perspective. He's become soft. He's like a kind of doormat for the tenants to trample on. He's blinded himself in his compassion to the fact that sending his beloved son is to reveal himself as a fool. But let me ask you something. Is the compassionate sending of his one and only son actually foolish? Is the sending of the son naive? Well, let's not forget who's telling the parable. The only other place in Mark's gospel where the phrase beloved son is used is at the baptism of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, the heavens were torn open, the spirit descended on him like a dove, a voice came from heaven and said, you're my beloved son. Jesus Christ is the beloved son sent by a compassionate God to be cast out of the vineyard and crucified on a cross. Not because he's careless, because he's compassionate. So Jesus sees himself here as making God's last and final appeal to the vineyard of Israel before he turns the gospel over to the Gentiles. Verse nine. Because you know what? At some point, and here's the hard truth, God stops extending his patience to unrepentant people. Back to that definition of the fear of God, the very people who won't dread the frown of God's judgment are the very ones who will experience it. And the very people who won't delight in the smile of God are the very ones who will never see it. And all this rejection climaxes in verse 7 when the tenants say to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We find that the aim of all that Jesus is saying is to help these religious elites, to help these first century vineyard tenants, to help them to be melted, to be cut to the heart, to be restored to a right fear of the God of compassion. But they won't budge. Their hearts are too hard. People are too big. God is too small in their eyes. And what about us? Will we see like Lucy? As we mature, will the compassion of God seem bigger to us? Will the compassion of God resource our fear of God? Or will we just keep fearing people? And take advantage of God's lavish compassion and patience. And so the end of the parable in verse 9 brings us to the second big resource in this text for fearing God over people, namely the judgment of God from verses 9 to 12. Now, I think 
it's fair to say that there's very few things that our culture nowadays is more allergic to than notions of the judgment of God. And so you and I, out of our fear of people, can hold back from talking about it. When we turn to the Bible, we find that Jesus Christ doesn't hold back. In the first half of verse 9, the door of the parable closes, and Jesus opens a new door into a kind of Q&A session. And he asks the chief priests, scribes, and elders, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And at the end of the verse, he answers his own question. He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's a kind of collide between the judgment of God toward the unrepentant and the continuing compassion of God toward the ignorant. He's saying that those responsible for the death of the landlord's beloved son, those who continue fearing people rather than God, who continue in unrepentance, who continue to deny Jesus' authority, and continue to refuse to put their faith in Jesus Christ, this is what will happen to them. He will come and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. He'll turn away from Israel in judgment and turn toward the Gentiles in mercy. Maybe for your afternoon reading, you can... Look at Paul's treatment of Romans 11, where he spells this out further for us. But basically, Jesus Christ is aiming to to kill these people's fear of people with the fiery judgment of God, which is able to kill them. Jesus says elsewhere not to fear those who can kill the body, but rather to fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Jesus is saying to let the judgment of God fuel our fear of God. And he does so as the one who in just a few chapters will go to the cross. He does so as the one who himself will bear the greatest expression of God's judgment so that we can be the recipients of God's greatest expression of compassion. The one who truly feared God died for those who refused to. This is the irony of verses 7 to 8. You see it? The tenants start conniving in verse 7, conspiring against the landlord and his son. They say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, verse 8, and threw him out of the vineyard, which is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. The son got the curse so that the sinners get the inheritance. The true Israelite was cast out so that the vineyard could be given to others. The heir of God's kingdom left everything behind to go and visit a thorny and fruitless vineyard and die. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But because of the cross, to those who do receive him, God gives the right to become heirs of his kingdom. Can you begin to see how the cross of Jesus Christ can change everything when it comes to our fear of people? Because Jesus Christ truly feared God. He freed us from our own fear of people. Because Jesus Christ took on the ultimate form of God's judgment, we can be the recipients of the kind of perfect love that casts out fear. Because Jesus overcame the fear of people, our fear of people doesn't need to overwhelm us. 
All we need to do is look upon the marvel of God's cornerstone. Verse 11. In verse 10, Jesus quotes the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes the Jews' own scriptures. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He cites Psalm 118. And in doing so, Jesus is transitioning from vineyard imagery to temple imagery. The cornerstone, as some will know, was the key foundation stone in God's temple. Without it, it all fall apart. And Jesus is claiming to be that stone. He's saying that if you have me... You don't need to fear the house collapsing all around you. Such that it may seem to you that your life is falling apart. And for some here this morning, this is your experience. People all around you are rejecting you. And this is scaring you. You lost the job you wanted or the relationship that you wanted, the friend that you thought would always be there for you. For us here in the Church of Canada, it can actually seem like there's no way forward. No matter what decision I make when it comes to sending my kid to school, I can do no right. There's n somebody's going to judge me for my decision. And what will happen when the, the trans ideology and the sexual revelation takes over our young people? What will happen if our economy keeps going in the direction it's going? Or if the government takes away the church's tax-exempt status because our views of, of sexuality and marriage are out of date? All valid and legitimate horizontal fears. All rational, people-ish fears. But then Jesus takes us from the vineyard to the temple and he says, no matter what collapses around you, you have only to fear God. Because if God has, because if God has overcome death itself in Christ, if God is judge, if he is the only one that can kill us eternally and he's for us, we can trust him when earthly fears confront us all around. And as Jesus identifies with that cornerstone rejected by men, he warns us of the judgment of God to disintegrate our fear of man. He says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's an allusion to his resurrection talked about the cross, but in his resurrection, Jesus Christ proves to be the head and cornerstone of the church. He proves himself to be the rock come to save all who fear him, such that he's the one we should fear. I mean, look into the empty tomb. The resurrection is the ultimate proof of how big God is. But sadly, in the end, down in verse 12, people were big and God was small. These men, they, they feared Caesar when Jesus, the true king, was standing right in front of them. They feared the people when Jesus Christ came to save the people. They killed the son when the son came to lay down his life. 
They don't see it yet, but on the cross, Jesus was about to demonstrate the greatest expression of both of these resources to crush our fear of people. The cross is the ultimate expression of both the compassion of God and the judgment of God at the same time. So therefore, nothing fuels a right fear of God than the cross, where Jesus, the true vine, would be cut off so that the withering branches like us can be grafted in. Where Jesus, the cornerstone of the temple, would be rejected so that you and I can enter into God's holy of holies. Can you imagine what it would be like if we actually lived like Lucy? To live by faith, to fear God, to see what the world can't, to see everything as small compared to a massive God, to live every passing year with God seeming bigger and bigger to us, to fear Him mainly instead of people mainly. Like when we see the sun, suddenly we realize that a candle isn't very dangerous. That's what the fear of the Lord is like. God becomes more real to us than anything else and we daily, like David says, set the Lord always before us and set his compassion and his judgment before us as we look again and again and again at the cross. We know this here in Canada. People today, like the scribes and the Pharisees, they're constantly trying to discredit Jesus. They question his authority. They try to shrink him down to size. And now we're in the position of choosing who to fear. So when we feel the temptation to deny Christ, not if, but when we feel the temptation to deny him, when we question whether or not to share him with others, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when my secular Muslim barber got to the end of our haircut and he was, he, somehow or another, we were talking about how the church is going and he, he finishes my haircut and he says something like, you know, basically every religion is pretty much just the same. You know, and I'm really glad that your Christianity is helping you love people better. And I froze. My precious cappuccino started Barber haircut was more real to me than witnessing for Jesus Christ. And so I left the place, leaving the guy to think that he was absolutely right. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When we reach a fork in the road and have to choose between obedience and disobedience, whether to lie or tell the truth, whether to slack off at work or work hard, so many little daily decisions that that center around who we fear the most. We need to remember that God is big and people are small. People are not insignificant, but they are small compared to God. And the key from this parable is to gaze repeatedly into the judgment of God by faith and the relentless compassion of God by faith and see them both displayed in the ultimate way on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time together in Mark 12. Thank you for the way your word so clearly puts your attributes on display. And I pray, Lord, now that as we come to the table, that we would catch another glimpse, that you would awaken in us a faith 
that makes you and your love for us and your beloved son more real to us than anything else. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.